Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, welcome, everybody, to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, which is an advocacy-based company in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, and we provide multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture. The radio platform is just one of them, um, but I welcome you today. We have some exciting news, and I'm, I'm just thrilled about both the guests that we have on the show today. Um, here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we really believe in giving voice to those afflicted with memory loss, their care partners, and empowering them to live purpose-filled lives. We're all about shifting our dementia care culture together. And our goal is to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with dementia. And it's our hope to teach people how to live with the disease, not as the disease. Our channel expert who has early onset Alzheimer's disease is Rick Phelps, and he may pop into the show. Rick was diagnosed in June of 2010, and he is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a wonderful support group for those with early memory loss, their care partners, both family and professional, as well as advocates or those that just want to learn more, build a community, and chat in a safe environment. Um, so if you have not checked out Memory People, when you're on Facebook, just put it in your search bar and ask to join. I highly recommend it. Please note that here we are extremely collaborative about shifting our care culture from crisis to comfort, and we really feel it's important to share the knowledge and the insights and the passions, and we encourage you, our listeners, to join the conversation. And you can do that in two fashions. If you're listening via your computer you can go ahead and utilize the chat box and type in any questions or comments that you would have. Or you can also call in to the number, at, which is 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. And all you have to do is push 1 and you'll get into my waiting room. That'll let me know that you have a question or a comment for for one of our guests or myself. So with no further ado, let's roll into this show because we have a lot to be talking about today. Our first guest is Dr. William Fry, um, the second, and he is the director of the Alzheimer's Research Center at Regents Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's a professor of the pharmaceutics and uh, faculty member for neurology, oral biology, and the neuroscience at the University of Minnesota, 
And he also consults um, to the pharmaceutical and biotech, uh, biotech industry. His patents are owned by uh, Novista, um, Stanford University, uh, let's see, it looks like Health Partners Research Foundation, and in many others. And Dr. Fry has come up with a non-invasive internasal method that bypasses the blood-brain uh, barrier. And he has been making some great strides, and he's got a huge announcement that he's going to be making with us today. Uh, he has been published, and you've probably seen him on TV or radio. He's quite renowned. And um, so welcome today. I'm just thrilled to have you back with us, Dr. Fry. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Lori, and it's so good to be back on your show. Well, wonderful. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm thrilled to have you because you are, with all the negative press we've been hearing about with failed trials and, and all the different variables, it's so nice um, to hear that you're making some progress here. So I'm just going to kind of throw it out in a general thing, and um, I'm going to let you talk about what you want because there's lots of different variables. Sure. Um, for us to discuss. So you go ahead and, and start wherever you would like. Okay. Well, of course, the you know, uh, the first thing that we um, discovered that we're very excited about for uh, treating Alzheimer's disease and also hopefully maybe even helping to uh, prevent or delay the disease is the intranasal insulin treatment that we developed. And this is a, um, a non-invasive treatment where insulin is administered intranasally into the nose as a nasal spray. And the insulin, when it goes into the nose, doesn't go into the bloodstream, but rather goes up the nerves involved in smell directly into the brain. And people who have Alzheimer's disease, as it turns out, have a brain deficiency of insulin. So uh, some people have even referred to Alzheimer's as a, a kind of diabetes or diabetes of the brain. And so uh, when, you, when you have a brain deficiency of insulin and insulin signaling, your brain cells are really not able to take up the blood sugar that they need to give them the energy to be able to think and remember uh, normally. And we've discovered that if you spray insulin into the nose, uh, the insulin can travel up these nerves involved in smell into the brain and very rapidly improve memory. And so far, we have had about um, four different clinical trials that have been done in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And in every one of these clinical trials, the intranasal insulin treatment has been shown to improve the patient's memory. Uh, in addition to that, in Germany, uh, researchers have given intranasal insulin to normal adults, people that are in their 30s, for example, and found that it also improves their memory. So this is a, a very important breakthrough because, as Lori mentioned earlier, so many of the treatments that have been developed by the pharmaceutical industry have really failed to improve memory in patients with Alzheimer's disease, especially some of the recent clinical trials. And so it's nice to have a treatment that does look very promising 
uh, as the intranasal insulin does. Another important aspect of this is that we're not really seeing any major adverse side effects. And of course, Safety is very important. Um, so this is really uh, one of the, the first things that is, that is moving along uh, in, the, in the FDA approval process. So at the present time, it is not an approved treatment yet. There still have to be more clinical trials done. And this year, the uh, FDA, um, uh, I'm sorry, not the FDA, this year the National Institutes of Health has uh, recognized intranasal insulin as one of the most promising treatments being developed for Alzheimer's and has actually put aside an additional $7.9 million to pay for more clinical trials to further uh, demonstrate and test the safety and efficacy of this treatment as part of the approval process. So it's our hope that uh, eventually this will be approved by the FDA and become available for patients suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Very exciting. We've got um, one gentleman in uh, J. Arthur's Memory Cafe that's taking your trial and is involved in that. And so we, we've all been rooting for him. <laughs> you know, that's to, terrific. To we, we appreciate that. And um, yeah, it was it was pretty exciting um, for him to get in. We were just all thrilled to death, and there there were so many others that wanted to get in, but of course didn't meet the criteria. And I would imagine with these trials, you have to be pretty specific and and grow them as you know as you need to, um, so that they've got your scientific value to move forward in things. Um, can you tell us with that trial? Um, is that a closed trial at this point? The one that's yes, going well, on that, trial is, that trial is, I believe, closed at this point because they filled up, you know, these trials, when you, when you do a clinical trial, you're required to do them a certain way, and you have to have um, pretty rigorous um, criteria for who can be in the trial and who cannot be in the trial. Um, because you're trying to answer some very particular questions. And in order to answer those questions, you have to have a fairly uniform group of patients. Um, unfortunately, it's not; these trials are not done in a way that just allows anyone who has Alzheimer's disease to come in and get the treatment and then find out whether it helped them or not. Uh, to the to the average person, that might seem like the way to do a trial, but the Food and Drug Administration um, requires that trials be done uh, in a much more um, controlled and rigorous manner. <laughs> and they have so, another opinion, do they? <laughs> yes, they do. And so in order to really make sure that if you see an improvement or you see a side effect that it's due to the medication, uh, that you're testing, uh, and not to some other problem that the patient may have had all along. Uh, they require that you know patients not have a variety of other problems, and that they they all have uh, you know the disease at a certain stage, uh, and that they're not taking certain other medications. And it's uh, it's a pretty complicated uh, process uh, that you need to go through for these for these trials. How long does it take to even, you know, set something up for approval? I would think that that's just got to be major hoops it, to jump through. 
Yes, there are major hoops to to jump through um, when you're doing a clinical trial. You need to have either the approval of your institution, your medical center's institutional review board, um, and in some cases you need also to have the FDA's approval uh, for the design of the trial, the number of people, uh, the how severe their disease can be, um, you know, and all kinds of other um, issues. Um, so there, there's a lot involved in this, and and of course you also have to raise the money for the trial, and you have to, you know, because you have to pay all the personnel involved in doing the testing, the treatment, etc. And in most trials, you have to have a placebo group, so you have the one group of patients that gets the actual medication, and another group that gets the gets the placebo because you need to know whether the medication is better than simply a, a placebo. A placebo meaning uh, a, the patients are treated, but they're getting a non-active treatment. And uh, usually in these trials, almost always, the investigators don't know which patients are getting the active drug and which patients are getting the placebo until after the trial has been completed and all the patients have been treated and tested. And then at that point, um, after the the results are in, the blind uh, or the, the, the investigators get to find out who actually had the active medication. And from that, then you can determine whether it really helped them or not. Okay. So, well, that's great because then the the people who are giving the pill can't give away any of those nonverbal signs, which is right. most of our communication that we forget. We exactly. Forget the, uh, that we're given out there. Well, that's very exciting. Now, is there another level of trials? I thought that you were going to be yes. doing um, well, after we're, this as well. Well, we will be doing an additional trial. The one trial that we're just finishing is a pilot study. Um, we're testing it where we have been testing a new type of insulin. We've also been administering it with a different kind of nasal spray device. But once we have the results of this trial, then we hope um, next year to uh, be able to conduct a larger trial. And okay. um, the the only, of course, there will be a number of issues in, in our ability to do that. One will be whether we can raise enough money to do it and uh, uh and of course we also will have to again go through the various approval processes for that um we're um also uh looking forward to testing another treatment that we have developed for alzheimer's disease and this is a um a drug that binds iron of course we all need iron in our bodies and we need iron because it's part of the hemoglobin molecule that carries oxygen through our blood but when people get older and develop a brain disorder like alzheimer's they actually start to accumulate um excess free iron in the brain and this iron then can cause damage to the brain it can inactivate the receptors in the brain that are involved in memory and cause damage to our memory, and it also can can result in other kinds of brain damage. Iron is a um, is a metal, which, as I say, we do need iron. But if you get um, too much free iron in the brain, 
it can cause the production of what, what are called free radicals. These, are, these lead to oxidative damage of, of brain components. And this doesn't occur because people are consuming too much iron in their diet. It really doesn't have anything to do with diet in that sense. It has more to do with uh, if there is a malfunction in the way our body handles iron. And so we have um, been developing and testing this um, very high-affinity iron-binding drug in animals that have uh, animal models of Alzheimer's. And we found that if you give this iron-binding drug as a nasal spray to, to normal animals, it actually improves their memory. And if you give it to animal models of Alzheimer's, like in mice, it helps to prevent their memory loss. Uh, we've also shown that if you give it to animals who have had a stroke, that it helps to very significantly reduce their brain damage by more than half. Wow. So now we are trying to do the required safety testing to move into human clinical trials. And, in fact, we will be having a meeting with the Food and Drug Administration coming up in November to discuss with them their requirements. That is, what, what more must we do before we're able to test this intranasal iron-binding drug uh, as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease in, in humans. So this is a second treatment that we are currently also working on um, alongside the intranasal insulin treatment. Oh, very exciting. Now, you have to share with people, because I just find this fascinating, and I think it just helps shift people to, to take action, but how did you come up with this, this whole process originally? I know it was like 20 years ago. It was. It was. And, you know, um, for a long time um, I've been working in the Alzheimer field. Actually, I started working in the Alzheimer field in 1977, which gives you some idea of how old I am now. <laughs> I'm turning actually 65 in November, so um, I'm getting up there. Uh, and uh, and sometime after I began to work on Alzheimer's, I, I came to realize that the biggest problem with treating Alzheimer's disease was not that we didn't have drugs already and medications already that may help, but rather was the fact that it's very difficult to get medications into the brain. So normally when you take a pill and the drug from the pill goes into your bloodstream, that drug can pass into all of the organs of your body like your liver, your kidneys, your heart, your lungs, and other organs. But there is a special barrier that protects the brain. It's called the blood-brain barrier, and it helps to protect the brain from things that might get into your bloodstream that could harm the brain because the brain is such an important organ. And a number of the treatments that uh, we had already, like, like the drug insulin, for example, which is a natural human protein, uh, a number of these substances... Um, they may be able to enter the brain in small amounts, but but they have some difficulty in effectively entering the brain because of this barrier. Uh, the iron-binding drug uh, is also one of these drugs, uh, which is it's difficult for that drug to pass in uh, this barrier. 
so um, I was very concerned about this and frustrated about it, and I went to sleep one night in 1989, and I had a dream that I was arguing with other scientists about how to treat Alzheimer's disease. And I was saying in the dream that I thought that nerve growth factors, things that could protect brain cells, would be really a good way to go to treat the disease. And they were saying to me, it's not going to work. And I said it would work if we could just find a way to get these growth factors into the brain. And that's when I came up with this idea, this very novel idea, that maybe we could get these growth factors into the brain if we gave them, instead of as a pill, if we gave them as a nasal spray or as nose drops, where these uh, growth factors could go up the nerves involved in smell directly into the brain without even having to enter the bloodstream and therefore without having to cross this barrier. And that's what started me really on uh, the track that led to the development of intranasal insulin for treating Alzheimer's and now to the development of, you know, of this intranasal iron binding drug. Wonderful. I just I think that is so neat that um again this came to you through a dream and that you listened and look where look where it's gotten you. I I think so many times we push that stuff away and think oh it can't happen it's just a dream but you know you've proven to listen to that inner voice and yes, think outside think the do. box. And you do. And I think that's, you know, I, I just commend you for that, and I, I just want to thank you for that um, because, you know, you've got so much. Uh, that, that dream has had such an impact all around the world with so many variables that you're working on. It's just absolutely incredible. So very, very neat. Um, now, you had um, you had kind of a big announcement, too, about some new exciting news. Can you share that with us as well? Sure. Sure, yes. Um, yesterday was a very important day for, for me and, and my collaborators because yesterday the United States government issued a patent to us for, our, for something that we discovered and have developed, and that is a, way to, a new way to treat brain disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and stroke and others with adult stem cells, these are stem cells taken from the bone marrow of adults, and we discovered that if you take stem cells from an adult, and in, and this is work that so far has been done in animals, and you give those stem cells intranasally <clears throat> to animals that have brain diseases like Parkinson's, um, that those stem cells can also go up into the brain and can very significantly improve people who have these brain diseases. So the first work that we did showed that we could get stem cells, adult stem cells, to go into the brain in animals by giving them intranasally. And the second paper we published in a journal called Rejuvenation Research showed that this could be an effective treatment for Parkinson's disease uh, in rats and mice. And now researchers in um, Sweden have shown that a similar 
type of intranasal delivery of therapeutic cells can help to treat multiple sclerosis in animals, and people at Emory have found that it helps to treat stroke in animals, and people in the Netherlands have shown that it can help to treat animals that have had a brain hemorrhage or um, young animals with that have had um, insufficient uh, flow of blood and oxygen to the brain. So finally, the the uh, the patent uh, issued yesterday from the United States Patent Office, and we're very excited about that. It's important to try to get a patent on new treatments because in order to get a treatment out to the public, you need to have uh, the pharmaceutical industry work with you, and they are most interested in developing treatments which have been uh, protected by a patent, like a U.S. patent. So this can help us, hopefully, to involve the pharmaceutical industry in helping to move this treatment forward um, the way we have moved the intranasal insulin treatment forward. Well, that is so exciting because there's been, you know, so much negative news about, you know, failed um, trials and and research. And it just seems like it's been one after another after another. And so um, you're coming in with your your white horse and saying, (laughs) hey, there's more options out here. We're we're still working on this thing. So that's, that's wonderful to hear. How can how can people you know support what you're doing? Is there um, is there a way that they can assist with that? Because there's a Definitely. lot of people that I think don't know about the Alzheimer's Research Center, um, yes. or, you know, or the other venues that you're yes. involved with. Well, certainly people can um, make tax deductible donations to support our research. And um, one way to do it is they can call the Alzheimer's Research Center and talk to people there. We have an 800 number, which is 1-800-229-2872. Again, that is 800-229-2872. Also, they can go online to the website for our nonprofit Alzheimer's Research Center, and the uh, web address is www.alzheimersinfo.org. That's www.alzheimersinfo.org. All is one one word, you know. And uh, so, yeah, we certainly appreciate uh, donations. And, you know, um, most of the work we've done could not have been done if it hadn't been for donations that we've received from people who support our work over many years. Um, Of course, we have had some funding from the federal government through the National Institutes of Health. We've had funding from some of the pharmaceutical companies uh, that are excited about what we're doing but really it is the individual donors, the people who have relatives with Alzheimer's who are concerned about this disease and who really want to do something to help develop new ways to treat and prevent the disease, they're the ones who've really made this possible and uh, allowed us to do uh, the work that we've done and come up with these new approaches to treating and preventing Alzheimer's. Lori, one thing I didn't mention about the intranasal insulin 
that I think listeners will find of interest is that it makes sense that giving insulin to the brain could help with Alzheimer's because we know that the biggest risk factor for getting Alzheimer's disease other than age is having diabetes. And, of course, people with diabetes don't have enough insulin signaling. And so it's not surprising that intranasal insulin, where the insulin goes from the nose to the brain and signals brain cells, it's not surprising that that's helpful to people with this this disease. Well, that's, yeah, that that is good information to know. Um, I was going to pedal back here on um, if, you know, if people want to participate in terms of, of helping fund or, you know, make you guys your the favorite charity and stuff, is to say that you guys do some, I, I think, some really interesting things in terms of annually um, having this breakfast that I've been involved with. Um, where you you know you talk about what's going on and you know I've been in the industry for forever and I remember the first year I attended I, I um, had invited 20 friends um, to come to the table and they were just shocked at what you guys are doing and that you were right here in our own backyard and um, you know the information is unbelievable so if people are interested in participating in that you could call that number and get on the list as well yes and and there's many ways um, to be able to um, donate if it's an individual donation you know if it's a a gift if it's an estate planning type thing um, if it's a corporate match so get creative you know on on how you can help move progress along here, or if you've got an idea um, for the Alzheimer's Research Center, I know that they'd be more than glad to uh, to talk to you about that because this is important stuff. And um, like I said in the beginning of the show, none of us can do this alone. Um, this is something where we all have to come together and um, think out of the box and work as a team uh, to to make things move forward in terms of what it is um, we can achieve uh, together, that's for sure. Um, now, you also were doing a presentation in Washington. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I was invited to speak at the um, military medical school for our, the Defense Department. It's basically it's called the Uniformed Services University, um, and um, uh, they have a strong interest in uh, trying to develop ways to help protect our soldiers from uh, head injury that occurs, you know, in uh, in uh, war zones like uh, in Afghanistan, for example. They also are very concerned about post-traumatic stress disorder. And mm-hmm. so they had invited me to come there and speak with them um, about uh, treating these conditions. And uh, so I was there and spoke with them, and and they're also very concerned about Alzheimer's disease because it turns out that people who have had a head injury or who have had post-traumatic stress disorder are also at higher risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. So, um, you know, we we try to get the word out about what we're doing to uh, all the various interested parties in order to try to get everyone on the same page and working together. You know, Lori, I forgot to mention one other thing that we're doing at the Alzheimer's Research Center in St. Paul 
and that is we have our um, Minnesota Memory Project, and this is a project that is headed up by Dr. Leah Hansen, who co-directs the Alzheimer's Research Center with me. And it's a very, very interesting research project where people um, uh, who enter the Minnesota Memory Project study uh, can be people who are, no who are normal people that don't have Alzheimer's, but that are just aging and are interested and, and concerned about, you know, what happens with aging and to memory function. Uh, or it can be people who obviously who do have Alzheimer's, and um, they do a number of of, of uh, they ask a number of questions, and they they also do certain kinds of testing, and they follow people over time, and we really hope to learn from the Minnesota Memory Project more about uh, what are the risk factors for. Uh, having memory problems and developing Alzheimer's, and what are the things that might actually help to protect us from uh, the disorders of aging like Alzheimer's disease in terms of diet and exercise and other kinds of factors. So this is yet one more project that we have underway, as I say, that Dr. Hansen is heading up. And if anyone wants to find out about any of these things, they can call us at the 1-800-229-2872 phone number. Um, uh, uh, and, of course, we're probably listed as well in the white pages of your phone book um, under Alzheimer's Research Center. Yeah, I'm actually part of that that project, but um, and I want to talk about that a little bit more. Um, but I also want to invite our listeners, if you have any questions that you'd like to pose, uh, to Dr. Fry, please feel free to use the chat box or call in to 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. And um, Dr. Fry is a, is a research doctor, um, so he's not going to be, uh, you know, diagnosing you or anything, but... Um, if you've got questions regarding research and studies, um, he's very familiar with other things going on around the world as well. I'm sure he'd be glad to field any questions that you may may have. Um, getting back to the Minnesota Memory Project, I'm actually part of that project, uh, you know, because my mom's had memory problems for 30 years and been in the nursing home 11, been in the end stages for four. And so, um, you know, I've, I've signed both my mom and I up for the brain autopsy at end of life because I think it's important um, for you guys to be able to have have the brains to work with, you know. And, right. you, you know, you can't do the research without those things. And some people might think that that's gross and all of that, but I, I think we really have to look at bigger picture. Again, everyone has to do what they're comfortable with. Um, but I'm I'm really big on... I'm trying to make a difference and, and do my part. And, you know, I'm not going to need my brain once I'm gone. That's kind of how I look at it. <laughs> so well, that's so important. And, you know, so many of us do have a family history. I know that I have had um, uh, uh, my father died with a combination of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and stroke. And on my mother's side, my, my maternal grandmother was one of ten brothers and sisters and nine of them had uh, a dementing illness uh, like Alzheimer's and uh, and dementia due to stroke. So 
you know, and of course, anyone can get Alzheimer's disease. You don't actually have to have a family history of it in order to to get it. So it's just a major problem, and especially as the uh, population is starting to age, um, you know, it's becoming a much larger problem and a financial problem as well for our entire country. You know, back in 1900, people just didn't really live much beyond the age of 50. And there were very few people who really uh, developed Alzheimer's. But now all of us, uh, or many of us, not all of us, but many of us are living into our 70s, our 80s, our 90s, even to 100. And uh, obviously that has increased the population at risk for this disease. Yeah. I know I have a question for you. Um, do you know what the youngest person is out there? I've heard in the 30s that people have been diagnosed um, yes. with this. People have been diagnosed in their 30s uh, with Alzheimer's disease. Um, the the um, early onset uh, Alzheimer's disease um, uh, is not very common. But it does occur, and it's, of course, a very devastating um, disease for the individual and for their families and friends. And um, uh, there's a, a great deal of interest in uh, how the, that disease may or may not differ from the illness that people get, uh, the Alzheimer's disease that people get when that, that starts in their 60s or 70s or 80s. So, um, but definitely, it does happen in some families. Okay, yeah. The um, you know, I personally think you know, especially with the screening that's going on, we're going to have a lot more people like my mom living with this disease a long time, um, especially if um, you know if their environment supports them, and you know they can continue to feel purpose filled. And, you know, I know that there's no research that, that states that, but that's just kind of my gut, that this is not this is not a disease that's just going to end quickly. I had a person argue with me, well, you know, that's impossible. And I'm like, well, you know what, that's my mom's life. That's our family's life. That's her community around her, you know, is all involved in this. This, this isn't a disease of just one. This affects so many of us. And so... Um, I think it's important to to you know really forge forward, um, get involved. Like with the Minnesota Memory Project, um, and, and I'm sure there's others throughout the country too. Um, you know, it's it's really pretty simple. In fact, I'm I'm due to go in the end of October for my testing again. They'll send me out a packet of information that's going to ask me what I'm going to eat and how do I exercise, and it's going to depress me because I don't do either well. You know, and, I, and I haven't changed my habits the way that I should. Um, but it's very um, it's very detailed, but it takes maybe 45 minutes or so um, to fill out the paperwork, um, bring that in when I go in, and, and then sit down and do the testing. And, um, yeah, is it scary? Yeah, you know, because you think, what if? But then you have to let it go. I mean, there's a lot of what ifs in our life, and if you let those drive you, you're just going to paralyze yourself. So, you know, get involved. Make a difference. Um, it, it doesn't cost any money to do. It's going to cost you a little bit of time and to spread the word and help expand these programs because the more data they have, the faster they're going to be able to get to the bottom of this and, um, you know, find a cure. 
So, again, we can't just push everything off on the research and the dollars. It takes the rest of us to be part of this. They can't do it without us. And um, so I really encourage people to, to take that portion seriously. Um, it's, it's, extremely, it's extremely important. Um, and, again, it, it, it doesn't have to be um, all woe is me. Uh, unless you want it to be. You know, you guys are, are also affiliated um, and do a lot with uh, Health Partners that has a, a new clinic uh, yeah. that just specializes, which is very cool, too. And I think that that's, um, that's kind of, a, you know, leading age in terms of what I see out there in terms of medical clinics um, aligning right. with, with research centers um, to have a deeper understanding of of what's going on, and so that's that's pretty neat too. So you guys are doing lots of very, very cool cool things there. Um, we are. We're very fortunate to um, we have our Memory and Aging Center, and uh, this is involves a, a clinic where people can come in for if they have any kind of um, memory problems and uh, can not only get a really good diagnosis um, but also can uh, 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 can be treated with with the treatments that are available, and um, also can learn a lot about the best way uh, to to uh, organize their lives and help uh, help make things easier for them and their families. Uh, we've been very fortunate to have uh, hired uh, Dr. Michael Rosenblum. Uh, Dr. Rosenblum was trained at Harvard and then spent quite a bit of time in San Francisco at the University of California, San Francisco, in their memory disorder clinic and um, uh, fortunately uh, wanted to come to Minnesota and set up our uh, Center for Memory and Aging and uh, has just done a really great job uh, in doing that. Um, and so uh, we're definitely there to help people, whether they're Health Partners members or not. Uh, they can certainly, um, you know, come to our center uh, and uh, and get get the advice and help that they would need. Well, that's fantastic. Now, um, Rick brings up a good point. Uh, for him, he you know he's got early onset and. He's always been a little leery of of joining a trial because you know you're afraid of going off your current um, med regime. Any comments to that? Um, I, I can see where that you know that would be a worry if someone is stable. Um, yes, I think it depends. So, for example, with this with the particular intranasal insulin trial that we are just coming close to completing. Um, the entrance criteria actually would not allow someone with uh, early onset Alzheimer's to be in that trial. Um, but hopefully in the future, uh, it would be great to have a trial that would um, uh, look at the potential of intranasal insulin to be helpful to people with early onset Alzheimer's. That's certainly something that we have discussed. Okay. Yeah, um, and I know that that's a big conversation in the memory cafes as, as well in terms of who can partake and and you know what what is really meant by early onset because 
um, the definitions I think that that research uses and the medical professionals versus the general public are very different out there. Yes. So can you can you describe uh, to our audience when you say early onset what that means to you as well, a researcher? Sure. Now I you know I'm not an expert on early onset Alzheimer's disease. I will say that at the, at the outset. But for me, um, when someone uh, has symptoms of Alzheimer's, and, they, and those symptoms begin uh, when they're 60 or 65, 70, 75, 80 or older, that I do not consider early onset. But someone certainly who has symptoms in their 30s or their 40s or their uh, 50s um, is, is, is likely uh, in that category of early onset Alzheimer's disease. Um, I'm not sure if there's a particular age that uh, is used as a cutoff, uh, you know, for that kind of um, uh, diagnostic category or not. But certainly anyone in their 30s, 40s, or early 50s, I think, um, uh, would be in that category. And, um, uh, you know, obviously it's devastating to anyone who gets Alzheimer's, but the younger you are, uh, you know, I think obviously the more tragic it is because it's affecting your life sooner. Yeah. Well, and I, I think part of the confusion comes, too, when people are diagnosed with early onset as the disease progresses. They may have, they may be diagnosed with early onset, but they could progress through the stages. And, yeah. you know, there's four stages, there's seven stages. It depends on who you talk to right. um, out there. And so I think that's where... You know, if the medical profession could could come to grips with that and and speak in a simpler language um, yes. to the rest of us, I think that would really help because well, uh, I think there's a lot yeah. of conflicting messages out there. Right, right. I think the stages um, that people talk about those are a little more arbitrary in the sense that um, you know uh, people have various have developed various classifications for, you know, maybe what stage you're in. But these are, are kind of, uh, you know, obviously someone initially gets the disease, they're in an early stage of the disease. And, and as the disease progresses, eventually they they reach a very late stage of the disease. But exactly how many you say stages you say there are is not something that is really written in stone and it's not something that is really based on the biology of the disease or the pathology of the disease entirely. It's somewhat arbitrary in terms of how the progression of the disease has been divided up into different stages. And, um, you know, it's one thing when we talk about early onset, meaning beginning early, earlier in life at an earlier age, and it's another thing when people talk about someone being in the early stages of the disease, meaning mm-hmm. they have just been diagnosed and are have just had symptoms for only a short period of time. Mm-hmm. And Rick, one of our um, listeners and our, our expert living with the disease himself says, you know, I, I can be in stage four this morning and be in stage two this evening. And and I think that that's really important too, because a lot of times, um, I know even for some of the um, support groups and things, people go through testing, and you know they're judged on are they appropriate for the group or not. 
And, you know, we all have our good or bad days, and things do kind of ebb and flow. And, and granted, you'll you plateau typically at at some point there, but but it is interesting. Um, and I, I know that's my experience, my personal experience with my mom and so many others is, you know, it can change from moment to moment, even in her end stages where she, you know, really doesn't communicate and doesn't seem to have um, much interaction, let alone clarity from the outside looking in. There's moments where, man, she just spits out a one-liner that's just so on target, and she right. might not have done that for six months. Right, you know? right. And so it, it's just a very, very interesting disease. I also wanted to um, get back in terms of the, the post-traumatic stress that you were talking about in the, the Army. Um, I think that that is really neat that they are looking into that in the the head injuries. Have you been doing stuff much with um, sports? I know a friend of mine, Carl Eller, the old ex-Viking, you know, right. is really working and pushing strongly for football, uh, the Football Association, to take a, a hard look at this. Right. Well, we're very interested in um, the treatment of, of a head injury, and it turns out the the iron binding drug, which I mentioned earlier, that we are giving intranasally to animals to treat Alzheimer's and stroke um, and and things of this nature, uh, we think that holds a lot of promise for treating head injury. And uh, so that's something that we are going to be trying to test, um, you know, in uh, in rats um, to see if we can demonstrate that when given intranasally, it is um, it's effective. We know that... Um, this iron binding drug has been shown to be effective already in certain uh, studies that have been done in rats. Um, and so we're just trying to really uh, pursue that because it could be very helpful uh, for people who have sports injuries uh, from football or boxing or any number of kinds of sports, as well as for the military mm-hmm. uh, who maybe have been unfortunate and um, had a head injury from one of these um, IEDs or some other kind of, uh, uh, you know, injury associated with the war. Okay. Now, um, have you guys done it much with um, Us Against Alzheimer's at all? Association, I know that they're big at really pushing um, research forward and, and things. With, and with who is this you're talking it's, about now? It's called Us Against Alzheimer's, and it's a... Uh, yeah, no, I'm not actually very familiar with that group, so um, I, I don't think we have. Okay, well, I will I will make that connection um, because I think that that would be a really um, good group for you to um, you to get in front of and um, let them know. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and post something on their Facebook page as we're talking um, to listen in on this. Um, but I've I've got some contacts there, and I will definitely. Uh, get a hold of of that group. Um, there's another group in Washington that um, is very uh, very interesting and very progressive in terms of the leaders, um, you know, in the country, kind of pulling together. Called uh, Leaders Engaged on Alzheimer's, and I can make you an introduction to that group as well. And for anyone else listening. Um, that is a, a group of businesses or associations, so it's not something that people on a local level, on an individual level, can participate in. Um, it's more big picture. 
and uh, Ian Kramer is in charge of that. And you can um, you can just Google him on Facebook as well. Um, same with uh, us against uh, Alzheimer's. Two great great groups with that. Um, so that that group is kind of similar in my eyes in some ways to Alzheimer's Disease International, where it's the the organization, you know, the organization of the organization <laughs> type yeah. thing. And and they they came out. Did you see the the new video that they came out with on stigmas? Uh, they did a big research study on uh, that was just announced for um, World Alzheimer's Day. That's pretty interesting about stigmas and trying to. Um, you know, help kind of with that social interaction and platform that is missing there. So um, another another great, great connection. Um, so is there anything else that you would like to talk about? We've got about 10 minutes left here that we can still continue to chat on. And Well, um, <clears throat> of course, you know, I think prevention is really important. And, um uh, there is, you know, a growing body of evidence that um, people who exercise regularly, um, you know, uh, actually may have a reduced risk for Alzheimer's and people who um, who do have a good diet. And, you know, some of the things that we're interested in are the fact that I had talked earlier, for example, about growth factors. And it turns out that when you exercise, your body does produce various kinds of growth factors that help protect the brain from damage. And so uh, exercise is important. I don't get as much exercise as I should, uh, but I know that um, when I do get exercise, I certainly feel better. And exercise doesn't just affect your muscles. It also affects your brain. Um, you know, we know that, for example, if you take um, rats or mice uh, and you put them into a cage and uh, you, you, you put some into a cage that have a, a running wheel in it and some that don't have a running wheel, the, the animals that exercise and have the running wheel actually have larger brains. And um, we know that various nerve growth factors are released into the bloodstream with exercise that can be very helpful. Um, we're also, of course, interested in, in certain aspects of diet. Um, these omega-3 fatty acids that are found in certain types of fish, um, like sardines and uh, salmon, uh, trout, other kinds of fish, um, appear to be very helpful to the brain. Uh, and so diet can be important. Um, we suspect that um, people who live in India... Uh, who have a lower incidence of Alzheimer's disease than, than people living in the Western uh, countries like the United States and Western Europe, we suspect that this may be due in part to diet. And uh, they consume certain types of foods and spices that seem to be protective to the brain. And uh, things, for example, like yellow curry, um, which contains the spice turmeric, um, is is something that actually medical researchers are studying um, and finding can protect important brain components. Um, and so diet and exercise are something to keep in mind. And in addition, just staying socially active and uh, mentally active can also be uh, helpful and probably can help reduce your, your risk <coughs> for 
Alzheimer's and and uh, help to keep you your brain healthy longer. So these are all um, areas uh, that are that require more research, and um, that's one of the reasons why the Minnesota Memory Project that Dr. Hansen uh, started uh, and is conducting um, is so interesting. Oh, yeah, so much so, so much so. It's funny when you were talking about turmeric at uh, one of the gals at the Memory Cafe through um, one of our founding members, um, RC, um, our, our, uh, let's see, ACR um, Healthcare Group, um, Kristen um, actually made us uh, a meal with turmeric in it, and it was wonderful, and she was telling us all about, you know, how we could utilize it and some of the benefits and kind of went over the research with it. And so that is something, actually, I can add to the blog. She's got some recipes um, for people to be able to, to utilize um, if they want to try that. And it's not very expensive to, to sprinkle in uh, your food and um, have that supplement. And, and you know, you when, to... you, when you think about it, it's, it's interesting because, of course, you know, for centuries and centuries in India, which is a where the climate is quite warm, uh, when there was no refrigeration, uh, obviously people living there tried to develop ways to preserve their foods, their vegetables, their fish, their meat. And that was one of the reasons, I think, that they developed the use of turmeric because it is a preservative and it helps to keep food from oxidizing and from um, degenerating, basically, and food, of course, when you're talking about fish and meat, these are very similar to the tissues of our bodies. And um, so it's probably uh, not too surprising that things that help to prevent the uh, degeneration of, of animal um, uh, foods like fish and meat could be helpful to also protect our bodies from oxidation and uh, degeneration. Oh, definitely. Now, there was a question here. Um, Mary Beth um, was asking, and I have to get, oops, it just bumped here again. Um, she said her husband um, was an athlete, very fit with regular exercise, but she said it, it didn't help him. Um, so let's see. But I'm all in for exercise. She said it can't hurt. She did have a question here earlier, and I just have to get back to it because it, it bumped me out here. Um, she was asking about the iron binding capacity that can be measured with a blood test, just wondering if it could be used as an earlier indicator. Well, unfortunately, we don't really have any good blood tests or blood markers that really help us identify uh, Alzheimer's disease or what's going on with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the problems with iron that occur in the brain don't seem to be um, reflected so much in the bloodstream. Um, now, there are certain things that, that people should consider in terms of blood tests. So, for example, we know that people who develop a deficiency of vitamin B12 uh, or a deficiency of thyroid hormone can uh, can have very significant memory loss as a result of that. And so a lot of uh, people do uh, have their blood levels of thyroid hormone and vitamin B12 checked um, every year or two uh, because if you, if you have that kind of a problem, you can diagnose that. 
with a blood test, and then you can treat that by taking um, a, a vitamin B12 shot or by uh, or by taking um, thyroid hormone supplements, things like Synthroid, et cetera, uh, that would be, have to be, of course, prescribed by your physician. Um, so there are certain things that can be checked in the blood, but these are not actually indicators of Alzheimer's disease. These are indicators of problems that can lead to memory loss uh, that, that are not uh, caused by Alzheimer's disease. Okay, okay. Well, all all good information you have shared so much with us today, and I just I think it's so exciting um, all the different things that are going on um, that you're doing. Um, one more question here. It looks like um, uh, let's see. Ask the doctor if he thinks aluminum may have um, a causative agent for dementia. Um, I do not. Um, I don't believe that aluminum is actually involved in causing um, dementia or Alzheimer's disease, and I don't think that too many researchers believe aluminum is involved. Um, certainly, iron appears to be involved. This does not have anything to do with iron in the diet, though. It has to do with the um, way your body handles iron. And um, uh, and the fact that that can lead to the accumu- abnormal accumulation of iron in the brain. Um, other metals um, such as copper and zinc have also been studied and are continue to be studied um, for their potential involvement. But um, I don't think that aluminum is is really involved. Okay, wonderful. Well, with that, I'm going to let you go. I've taken a whole hour of your time, and I so appreciate it. Um, can you give people, again, contact information if sure. they would like to be able to reach you or the Alzheimer's sure. Research Center? Yes, they can call our 800 number, which is 1-800-229-2872. That's 1-800-229-2872. Or they can go to our website, which is www.alzheimersinfo.org spelled www.alzheimersinfo.org You are good at that. You've done this a few times. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lori, it's sure been good to be on your show again. It's always great to speak with you. Oh, well, thank you so much, and you have a wonderful day. Thanks again for your time today and all the updates, and please keep us posted. We'd love to have you back again, and um, kudos for listening to your dream. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Next, I want to introduce our guest, Dave Horsager, and I am thrilled to death to have Dave on the on the horn with us today because he not only is a personal friend of mine, but he is a leader and a shaker um, in the speaking industry. And he just launched his his new book, The Trust Edge, which is an absolutely fabulous book. Not only is he an author and a business strategist and a keynote speaker, um, he is just one of the nicest men I have ever met, um, and he, I'm, I'm lucky to have him here in my own backyard in Minnesota. 
Um, Dave has achieved um, so many levels of um, professionalism throughout his career. He has his uh, CSP, which is a Certified Speaking Professional Status, which is no easy task. He has delivered life-changing presentations on four continents with audiences ranging from Fortune 500 executives to the armed forces and to even um, professional sports teams. And today we're honored to have him shed his light on um, and his, his attitude and his presence in terms of trust and how important it is to build relationships and have a successful life. And we're going to kind of twist his, his business book um, in terms of our personal selves as caregivers because it, it applies um, and I think sometimes people box themselves in thinking you can only use one strategy in one place. But trust is something we need in, you know, throughout our life, in our personal life, how we respect ourselves, how we respect others, um, if it's family, loved ones, strangers, or business professionals. So welcome today, Dave. How are you doing? Hey, thank you, Lori. What a treat to see you last night at the at the shindig. Oh, So yes. at the launch the launch time so uh yeah really a, a treat to be on with you it was a wonderful event dave launched his book at barnes and noble in uh downtown minneapolis and it was just a beautiful beautiful event and just a packed house so it was very exciting to um be able to share in your success of of your book with simon simon and schuster uh that's launching uh highly encourage people to check it out um, to start out with, Dave, can you just tell the audience, have you ever personally been touched um, in family or friends with dementia at all? That's always just kind of a nice background for people to know. Yeah, you know, I will tell you something specific. Certainly in volunteer work at uh, nursing homes and even being having very close work at um, certain places like uh, you know, Walker Methodist Healthcare down here and uh, some other places where we've done some more significant work as far as my company I have. But interestingly, family-wise, I actually haven't, you know, you, you saw my parents last night, 83 mm-hmm. years old, and uh, haven't, on Lisa's side or my side, and my grandparents, you know, a lot of people would see different people. It doesn't have to be super old, but, my, you know, they were gone before I got to, you know, meet some of them and, and if you know, if they had some of those challenges. So I haven't been as personally touched as a lot of people that are going through it, you know, and are are deeply touched by it, you know, every day uh, from a from a close family member situation. Okay. Well, fair enough. And lucky you. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I can. I can. You know, there's so many tr- struggles and challenges and all kinds of things people have, but I can't. I'm not going to uh, say that I've been where some people on on this issue, issue have. That's for sure. But um, yeah. So. Okay. Well, I know one of your beliefs is that we are really in a trust crisis as a society in the world. Can you explain to our audience what you mean by that? Well, it's interesting. You know, at the World Economic Forum in China just a couple years ago, these great leaders from around the world got together, you know, prominent, prominent presidents and, you know, executives and whatnot, and they said, what is our – this was in the middle of, by the way, the financial crisis, and they said, is the financial crisis our biggest crisis? What is the biggest crisis? 
And they said, no, it's a crisis of confidence and a crisis of trust. And you know what? They got it right. When we have lost confidence and trust in people, in leaders, in government, in financial institutions, then every all of our behaviors change. Our fear goes up. Our skepticism goes up. Everything becomes less efficient. And so we are in, I, I think we are in a confidence crisis, of uh, a, a uh, trust crisis. And the truth is, from my research, you know, when I started thinking through all this, you know, kind of most significantly kind of the epiphany came in 2003, the way I started to see things as not a, you know, the challenges that people were having, whether it was in relationship or whether it was in a friendship or whether it was in a business or an organization, the biggest challenges people had weren't the challenges they thought they were. They were trust problems. And so... You know, my research, first of all, I tied trust to how it affects um, everything more than anything. Really, it affects uh, relationships. It affects it affects uh, costs. It affects business more than anything. How the single uniqueness of greatest leaders and organizations and friends and moms and dads, greatest uniqueness is trust. And then my research went into how do you really build it? Is it just simple what people think? Is it just honesty or something like that? Or is it more? And it seems like turns out that it's a lot more to be most trusted. But, um, you know, first, in business, you, you, you can see how the cost of trust, I mean, uh, I, you know, I mentioned it last night, but but um, Tiger Woods, one breach of trust, and he lost millions in weeks, hundreds of millions by now. Right now, we've got uh, Sandusky, the Penn State deal happening. He just went to prison yesterday. That breach of trust is projected to cost a billion dollars over the next decade for Penn State. You know, you've got your credit stores, scores a trust, a trust score. But even in your, you know, uh, re- high relational um, way you help people and talk to people, really a lack of trust is our biggest expense. It's a biggest expense, whether it's a dad or mom, a friend, a caregiver, a nurse, a anybody. The biggest cost you have is your lack of trust because what happens? If I don't trust that caregiver, then what happens? I'm skeptical. Then I have to check everything. Then I have to. T- it takes way more time. It costs more. Then maybe I get someone else involved. I mean, every time trust goes up, costs go down. Time to get things done go down. You know, worry goes down. Morale goes uh, up. Stress goes down. So if you can build trust, whether it's in relationship, you know, with your uh, family. I mean, look at this. Some of these dementia issues lead to family issues and how my brother's going to treat my mom, how my sister's going to treat my mom, how this situation or struggle is going to happen or not. And if we have a low trust environment, you can imagine or see how difficult that is on a family. On the other hand, if you have a higher trust or can build trust in that environment where you maybe you maybe still disagree on what we should do with our mom that has dementia or our um, you know, our friend, our aunt, um, then we still every it, it if you can keep high trust or develop high trust then everything changes even if you disagree so true i i think that that is um it's so overlooked and it's such a you know it's at the basic root of everything that we do and is is so valuable and so precious and it can twist and turn our relationships on a dime and Absolutely. when it comes to caregiving like you said, there's so, there's such a ripple effect because if we come in to give care to somebody and we're skeptical, um, they're going to pick up on that. If we go to a doctor's appointment and we're not trusting, 
what we're being told or how how we're being treated. Um, it's going to affect our interaction. It's going to affect how effective we are um, in terms of our communications and, you know, how person-centered care um, are we focused. And, yeah, definitely big, big issues there. And for companies, you know, I would one of the things that I'm doing, and I, I don't think I've even told you this, Dave, is I'm launching dementia-friendly businesses and communities, <laughs> which is all about getting information um, and allowing people to trust that you're there to help support them mm-hmm. through that. We have a lot of employees right now that are dealing with uh, dementia care and all different types of, of caregiving situations, and they don't feel comfortable letting anybody know what's going on in their life because they don't want to lose their job. They don't want that to be used as an excuse. And so, mm. you know, the stress builds. And, Absolutely. Um, it's it's tough, and, and companies need to look at being resourceful, laying stuff out on the table, and um, and helping support because when you get, you know, when you when you get, um, you want to give back, and mm-hmm. um, you know everyone is just you know so much more healthy. Now in the book, you talk about eight pillars of trust. Can you share mm-hmm. with us um, about the eight pillars of trust? Sure, happily. Basically, you know, the first part of the research, as I said, was let's just look: is trust really costing that much? And it turns out that a lack of trust is your biggest expense in an organization. And by and as you know, this can be related to personal relationships or any anything else. Just like we said, caregiver, any because expense isn't always reflected. It, it reflects in costs, like the Tiger Woods or the or the credit score case. But it also reflects in costs when there's um, a low trust team, there's less creativity and innovation, a low trust. Uh, friendship, you know, when skepticism goes up, so does time and costs, even if it doesn't um, look like financial costs. So it really does relate to to anybody, including caregiving or friendships or, or companies, uh, you know, like we said. So so my first part of research was what, how does trust really affect things? It ter- turns out that high-trust environments have the greatest efficiency, the greatest effectiveness, the greatest reach, the greatest impact, and generally the greatest bottom line if they, if they are for profit. The second part of the research then was what builds it, and that's where the eight pillars come in, and we call it the eight-pillar framework. These eight, you know, they don't come out as pillars. They just came out of the research as uniquenesses of those brands, organizations, leaders that were most trusted. And just to drive that point home one more with one more bit, think about it. For the trusted brand... You'll pay way more. You'll come back. You'll tell others. The trusted leader gets followed. The trusted salesperson gets bought from. Here we are in election year. The trusted leader gets voted for. Um, you know, elections, 100% about trust. So you're, you're. Um, it, first of all, that that part. Now the pillars is how we build trust. And well, a lot of this might seem simpler. Might be like, oh, well, of course, this or that. You know, I can tell you as I tell you the eight pillars. But the truth is very few people, very few leaders, very few brands are doing all eight pillars, and those that are have the greatest impact, the greatest reach, and the greatest bottom line. So with that preface, I'll give you the eight. That sound good? Yep. So the eight pillars of the most trusted leaders and organizations are, number one is clarity. People tend to trust the clear and they mistrust or distrust the ambiguous. And if you, any of you have questions on any of these, I can come back to them and give give more uh, more to it. But clarity is that you know uh, p- 
people follow a clear vision, they don't know how to follow one that's vague. They, you know, they like to have a manager who's clear. We don't want to be the, you know, a manager like me. One time I can remember a while back when I was giving my uh, uh, associate, a colleague, something to do. I wouldn't get the, I, she would never get the project done the way I wanted it. Finally, I got absolutely clear. I spelled it out. I wrote it out, and I started to get what I wanted. Whose fault was it? Mine. That you got to be clear. Another place where people aren't clear is what they need to do every day. Many people work hard all day long, and they say at the end of the day, oh, I didn't get anything done. And often because people don't do the most important things, they're not clear on the most important things to do. It was fascinating. Um, I was in a roundtable here recently, a little leadership group where I got to be in Larry King's home, and I thought it was it was fun. One of the people there said, um, um, if you have more than three priorities, you don't have any priorities. And wow. this just this idea of being clear in life, in what we do, and how we get, you know. So anyway, I can go into that a lot more. The next pillar is compassion. A lot of the people in your industry have a lot of compassion. What happened is a lot of people, that, you know, especially businesses and organizations, didn't know that there was such a bottom line impact to compassion. And the truth is, the greatest leaders, organizations, most trusted people have compassion. They think beyond themselves. This ability to think beyond yourselves, and we know caregivers often do this, sometimes to a fault, but um, this this ability to think beyond yourself, this compassion pillar, is powerful when balanced with the others. Uh, the third pillar is character. That's you know clearly a foundational pillar. Um, this this ability to do what's right over what's easy. We found that those leaders that had the trust edge or had this character pillar did what needed to be done when it needed to be done, whether they felt like it or not. This idea of doing what's right over what's easy. It's interesting in our culture, we have we have this tendency now to do what we feel like instead of what we ought to do. And I don't need to argue that much as much as people might think, well, what you think's right is what you think's right when this person thinks right is what this person thinks right. Most people actually, no matter their religious background or anything else, would agree on what's right. The bigger problem is on doing what they think is right. I mean, today, we do so much based on feeling. You think about it. Um, your kids, uh, often in our day and age, parents, on Friday night, their kids are going out with friends, and parents say what? They say, have fun. Have fun. But 20 years ago, 30 years ago, parents didn't say, have fun. Parents said, <laughs> be careful, and then they said, be good. You better be yeah. good. You know, and, so and, and, and now today we say have fun. Well, what's you know what's the message? It's all it's throughout our culture where we want our kids. I mean, I'm telling you, I don't tell my kids to have fun. I I want them to be good, and I want them to live in a culture where they learn to be good over having fun. I want them to learn. I mean, it, it affects every part of their lives. If if we can if we just teach kids to have fun, then they eat too much. They they drink their own. If we can teach them to do what's right, they maybe will. Um, eat healthier, live healthier, not treat that person that way, um, and whatever, and they actually end up, of course, having more fun or positive. Um, you, you know, I don't want my kids thinking Friday night, uh, oh, Dad said have fun, I guess I'll do this. I want them thinking, Dad said be good, I better do this. And it's not oh, a perfect that science, is, we all know that. But That is really we can, powerful, Dave. It, we, but, we, we, they, go ahead. I'm just saying that is really a powerful statement in terms of just switching those teeny little words is just huge. 
We see people. People think they can't create integrity, but they switch some of these small words and small expectations, and we see, we've seen a company grow with on the integrity index, their integrity by 2.5%, and what happened? Their bottom line went up through the roof. So these little things make a big difference. We say it all the time. Trust stuff. You know, trust isn't this motivational speaker coming in and telling you how to lose 50 pounds in a week and make a million bucks in a month. Trust mm-hmm. takes work. Trust takes effort, but it's the only way we know to um, to build lasting success as a mom, dad, caregiver, friend, or business. And so, uh, you, you know, people don't just trust you because you say, just trust me. They trust you uh, be- when trust is earned. And so this stuff, it takes work, but you're absolutely right when you say what you just said. It's the little things done consistently that make the biggest difference. Little things. So people want to know the big nugget. They change their frame of reference from be good, from have fun to be good. It changes things. When people do little things differently, it makes we've seen it make a huge difference. We've seen someone change a little. It, it triples their revenue. We've seen another pe- uh, couple do a little thing consistently and save their marriage. So little trust things can make a big difference. That you are, you know, you're absolutely right about. So yeah. Um, I'll let you keep going with your numbers. We were on character, so. Okay, yeah, so the next pillar is competency. Now, you might have thought, and a lot of people think, well, isn't character the main thing? Isn't the only thing? Isn't it just be honest and I'll be trusted? The truth is, I might trust um, you for your character with my kids for the weekend. Of course I would, Lori. Uh, You would trust my kids to come over to your house. But I wouldn't trust you to give me a root canal. (laughs) <laughs> because of Good your choice. competency at that specifically. So we learn that to be trusted in an area, we have to also stay competent, fresh, relevant, and capable in that area. We want, <clears throat> excuse me, people, we don't want to use the surgeon that learned, the, learned uh, how to do that surgery 20 years ago and hasn't practiced since. We want someone who's stayed up on the newest technologies and techniques of that kind of surgery to do that on us. So we want we want people that, that um, we know that competent people, they're humble because they know they don't know it all. We, we know that they're often readers. They have mentors. They, there's certain things. They, in the book, I go into this. How do you stay fresh, relevant, and capable? How do you stay most competent? And uh, there's some great easy techniques, really, to do it, to be most trusted in your area of influence. The next pillar is commitment. We trust those that are willing to stand through adversity and are committed beyond themselves. You know, the commonality often of some of the greatest people in the world. If you think back on a person that's made an influence on your life, whether it's a second-grade teacher or a parent, or if you think on people that have that have made a huge influence in our world over you know uh, years, uh, Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Jesus or something, they have one major commonality, and that is sacrifice. Whether it was your second grade teacher or parent or one of those from history, those people that have really uh, made a huge legacy change for you know lives to come is uh, that they sacrifice. And this commitment pillar, those they're committed to higher character. They're committed to doing what's right over what's easy. They're also committed to those in front of them. They're, they they have this commitment. This this not just commitment. And there's a couple sides of commitment. One is the only way to rebuild trust is to make and keep a commitment. 
You can't just say you're sorry. We have people say they're sorry all the time. I'm sorry I'm late. And you're not sorry you're late. You're late all the time. I mean, it's you know, people just say it. But people that do make a commitment or promise and then keep it, we start to trust. We see this in business with people like BP. But we also need to look at this individually. There's a, And this is good, I think, for your your caregivers and people. Don't make so many commitments. Only make ones you really, genuinely, positively can keep. There's an added, you know this this truth, love your neighbor as yourself. What it, what it precludes is if you don't love yourself, you have a hard time loving your neighbor. Wouldn't you agree? Yep. Well, that's the same with trust. If you can't trust yourself at all, you have a hard time trusting others. You have a hard time trusting building trusted teams. So what's our problem in America? Many people, they uh, uh, make a New Year's resolution. And, you know, uh, did you know that uh, 90% of people don't keep their New Year's resolution for three weeks? Wow. Now what happens? They lose trust in themselves and trust in others. And it's... it's uh, it's the worst thing is to lose to lose this ability to trust yourself. What happened for me? I can tell you, and you've seen me uh, a little bit, but about uh, two years ago, a year and a half ago, I made a commitment to my team. I, in fact, in front of my whole team and the company next, the offices in the same office building, because I know them well, shook hands with their general manager and said, if I'm not at my high school weight by May 1st, I'll give you $2,500. Now, uh, my wife wasn't super excited about this because that meant I'd need to lose about 50 pounds. Now, it's not easy to lose weight. It's not easy for anybody. I don't judge anybody. It's not everybody's time to lose it. But I knew that time it was time for me to to really have that be a major focus for my for my life. And so I made this commitment out loud. Now, I, I, you just got to think about this. Is the biggest problem for me when I get on that scale on May 1st, the $2,500 if I don't make that weight? No. No. I If I would have got on that scale and not been below 190 pounds, I would have lost my team that day because I made and didn't keep, would have made and not kept a commitment. Now, what's worse is I would have lost trust in myself. So don't make commitments. I really want to oppress and encourage the, the those that are listening not to make so many commitments. Don't tell your kids you'll be there if you for sure won't be there. Don't tell people, you know, of course there's things that come up, but it's very unique. We don't trust those that say they're sorry all the time. We trust those that say they're sorry seldom uh, because things happen and people are imperfect too and whatnot, but they say they're sorry seldom because they, they and when they do have to say they're sorry, they go over and above to be a part of the solution and, you know, really uh, think through making and keeping commitments. Of course, if you don't make a commitment, you get to start over again, and you can rebuild trust, but it starts really not with so much with an apology here and there, but with making and keeping commitments. So uh, that's that's the next pillar. The um, the seventh, sixth pillar is connection. That pillar speaks to the idea that uh, we trust those that are willing to connect and collaborate with others. You know, we're we're connectors. We're we're um, you know. And by the way, people think sometimes that connecting people, oh, they've got charisma or they've got this or that. You know, we know a lot of people with charisma that uh, we want to you know throw up around them, whether it's politicians or whatever. But it's people that are genuine connectors. And by the way, some of the top traits of connectors of those with truly magnetic personalities is not extrovert or charisma. It is 
gratitude, the number one pillar, our number one trait of magnetic is that they're grateful people. We love to be around grateful people. People that are people that are grateful aren't entitled, they don't complain, they aren't gossipers. They have this gratitude that we are drawn to, whether they're introverts or extroverts, doesn't matter at all. Uh, Another trait, the second trait of of really magnetic people is they're genuine. They're authentic. They're true. Um, So that that one, you know, it has several ways of, of growing the connection pillar, of course. The next pillar, the seventh pillar, is contribution. This speaks to the idea that in order to be trusted, at the end of the day, I need this contributor, someone who actually gets results. So I might trust you with your character or trust you with your compassion, but if you don't give me the results I asked for or expected, I'm not going to trust you. On the other hand, you can give me a bunch of results, a salesperson that I know, but not have compassion or care, and I will not trust you over time either. This was the remarkable piece of the results, is that you have to have all grow all eight pillars. You have to have all eight to, in essence, have what we call the trust edge, this greatest competitive advantage of being trusted or confidently believed in. So it, one of my favorite parts, by the way, of the book is how do we motivate contribution in our teams? How do we motivate otherwise people to contribute or to, to get results? And there's six E's uh, on contribution, on, on motivating contribution in your team. And by the way, it works in your family, works with your kids. It works with your, you know, if you run a team or anything you might lead or be a part of, those E's are the way to motivate results in teams. And uh, that's we've seen that have a huge impact. So the final pillar is consistency. You got to be the same all the time. We sameness. We don't trust brilliance. I mean, a brilliant idea is interesting. That's interesting that you did some brilliant, feat. but we don't trust it unless it's consistent. The same all the time. We don't. You know, this is McDonald's. We might not even like McDonald's, but we trust them. In fact, I've had the exact same burger in Tokyo, Frankfurt, and Cleveland. You know, we don't know. Maybe it's made of some different meat. I have no idea, but it tastes the same, smells the same, looks the same, <laughs> and uh, that pickles off centered everywhere I go. I mean, it's the same. So. It, we trust sameness. We want sameness. And this gets to the point that you made that the little things done consistently make the big difference. I mean, from when when I was overweight, it's not it's not because I ate too much this morning for breakfast. It's because I've eaten, eaten too much or drank too many mocha lattes or whatever over months, years. If I'm a good husband, it's because I've loved and honored my wife over years, not because I gave her a diamond, diamond rings one, one day or a dozen roses another day. It, it, not that those things wouldn't help, but it's, uh, it's the consistent things that really make it. If, if I'm a good leader, a good caregiver, it's consistently consistency that really makes a person that. This does not mean that you need to say yes every time as a caregiver. You need to maybe consistently have rest. You need to consistently, to consistently give, you need to consistently recharge. So you, you need to really balance these in your realm to be most trusted. I think some people, especially caregivers that have been around, can be uh, so one hard on themselves and so think they can be so much on that compassion pillar, for instance, that they don't balance all eight. And that was the uniqueness of the research. If I'm going to be a caregiver that, um, you know, like many caregivers, they have this compassion pillar, but they have to be able to give results. How do I give results? Well, I've I've got to be able to 
Um, I've got to rest. I've got to recharge. I've got to – so to consistently give, you have to consistently uh, be taking care of yourself too. And uh, that my my wife has a um, something she says that, you know, you can't uh, do the big things. You can't have this new goal unless you're doing some key things. You're getting sleep. You are eating right. We call it seeds. She calls it, she has this little acronym, how do you plant a tree? How does a tree grow? Well, first you have to have the seed. And that is, you know, a lot of people, they go to some conference and they go, I've got to set a big goal. I'm going to, um, you know, uh, write a book or I'm going to run a marathon or I'm going to whatever. And those things are fine, but you don't do, we found that unless you get have your seed planted right, you it's really hard to do the big thing. And I can say this with weight for me. I knew when I was doing my graduate research and working 14 hours a day, I wasn't going to focus on the weight thing. I knew when I was writing a book and doing research 14 hours, 16 hours a day, I wasn't going to do it. But later, I had this window of time. I could do it. But I was getting my seed planted right. So I'll say what the seed is. Seed is uh, sleep. got to get sleep. got to exercise some. you got to eat right. you got to drink lots of water. And um, source, we have a, we have a belief of spiritually, uh, just that your source is in God. But you can um, that can be um, people can can think about that for themselves. But we, you know, it's really uh, that's an important piece of living consistently, especially in the demanding role as a caregiver. Uh, very true. I, I like the seeds, and I, I have to say, um, Dave, you have given us so much to think about. I want to tell people a little bit about um, the book itself because the way you structured it, I think, makes it so much more helpful and useful to people because it's really interactive. I mean, you mm-hmm. you pose questions for people to really, you know, take a look at themselves. How did you come up with doing that, or was it did it just seem like a natural you, thing to do? Because it really know, flows very well. I really appreciate that. We wanted to be different than any other leadership book like this, and, and it really applies to anybody. But I really wanted, you know, a lot of books today, you get a book, and it's black on white paper, and it, it is what it is. People would say on stage, at least this is what we hear, you've got this this message that's so powerful and and it's trusted, obviously, and it comes from research. But on the other hand, you're not this lecture that's um, – that's, uh, you know, I used to be a professor some, so you're not this professor lecture guy. You're really funny and fun and engaging. So I, when I talked to the designer, I said, can we take a trusted message and yet have it be fun and engaging? And can we design it in a way that's how a book would look, you know? And so I think she hit a home run with the tabs and the red and the questions. I also was very much into, I have a real bias for action. That comes from the contribution pillar. Even when I do strategic planning for organizations, I just hate think of these organizations that have spent a lot of money on a strategic planner, and then they put they put it on their shelf and they never used it. And so I have a real bias for doing something. So that's where the questions and bullet points and and um, so those interactions came away. Is I really want to hear it. It's it's great to hear about the book. It's to hear someone say it saved our marriage, it tripled our sales. It I, I actually used it. I did something. So with this bias for action, we really wanted to create it in this fun way, engaging way, um, colorful way, but also this way where people would think through, how does it apply to them? 
How can they actually use this stuff? And that's what we hear a lot is, boy, I actually did something different, or this actually made me think this way, and now I, I, this is a, a framework that I can use, or these, these questions made, you know, or bullet points or whatever. So that, that was inspired, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, but thanks for the comment, too, because um, part of that was wanting to be unique and different, and part of it was just my bias for, for wanting to be, um, have it be true to who I am as far as hopefully fun, but with a serious message and uh, with a bias for action for doing something different. So, yeah. Well, it's it's absolutely fantastic, and I would encourage individuals to to buy this because you can you can use this book in all aspects of your life, or you know if you've got a, a family and you're trying to figure out why the dynamics are affecting you the way they are, um, the trust edge could really give you some high insights, not only to what the other guy's doing, but what the heck you're doing and how you can do it differently in taking small steps steps to have big impact and um, really being able to get to be person-centered, no matter who you're caring for, if it's yourself, if it's a person with dementia, if it's your child, your spouse, your loved one, a neighbor, it, it doesn't make any difference. Difference. Trust is a critical aspect that we all have to embrace um, because, like you said, David, is it, we are in a, in a trust crisis um, in the world. You know, all around mm-hmm. us, at all different levels in um, of our relationships, and that is something we all have the power to change. Every single mm-hmm. one of us can be responsible for our own personal trust edge, and as we develop that and march forward, we're going to be leaders and and be mentors and show the example that it can happen. Things can change. And um, you're going to have gifts, um, just blessings, um, that you're going to be astonished with once you, you take those eight pillars, put them in place. It's an, it's an easy read. Um, it's, it's just a fabulous thing. And we all need to not only trust ourselves but be able to trust those in our lives and those we need in our lives. And we never know who that's going to be. So just to even just read the book and have a conscious awareness of the impact of what this little five-letter word can have as an impact in your life mm. is incredible. Mm. Mm-hmm. Very incredible. Well, thank you. Well, I, thank you, I thank know you. That, I know that you are running time-wise here. I, I don't know how you're even keeping up with your schedule. <laughs> the way it is. It's, it's so, been so a I, privilege. I so appreciate you being with us today. Is there anything um, at the end of the day that you would like to um, have caregivers walk away with? You know, one one sentence or maybe a word. You've given us a lot, but well, is there anything else I, I that think bubbles two to the things. I think to yeah, I think to think of that a lack of trust is your biggest expense in life, and not just in money cost, but in cost, cost of relationship, cost of richness. So if you ought to be about anything, and I ought to be about anything, it ought to be about being most trusted by being trustworthy, and what does it take to do that? And then I would like people to walk away with a simple, clear, actionable uh, you know, way, this eight-pillar framework and in remembering, it's not the big things, it's the little things done consistently that make the biggest difference. And I hope that for them. I hope they enjoy the trust edge. I uh, just uh, wish that for them. If you, that We will give, by the way, this week, anybody that grabs the book, 
we have thousands of dollars, over a thousand dollars of free resources for anybody who buys the book. Uh, you can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or anywhere and just email your receipt to Ryan at DavidHorsager.com or Ryan at TheTrustEdge.com, and um, we'll send you a link to uh, ten or twelve videos and a, just a myriad of resources for anybody who wants to buy it that you heard it on your show. Even if you hear this later or re-listen to it, just email that you heard it on Lori's show, and we will uh, we'll get you that. So. Um, I hope you enjoy that, and uh, Lori, appreciate all the great work that you're doing. Yeah, we have some comments here in the chat room. Uh, Mary Beth said that um, she's been reevaluating things, and um, this was just great, a great timing and uh, for her. And she said that she went out to Amazon, and you've got five stars, so she's going to buy that book right away. <laughs> um, we also oh, have cool. a caller on the line, and I'm not sure if they're just listening or calling in because they didn't push one. So if you're a 903 number and you want to ask Dave a question, um, go ahead and push one, and I'll call. I'll pull you into the conversation here really quick. Um, but again, I want to be I want to be conscious of your time. Um, Dave, do you have a, a website um, that they should go you can, to? Yep, you can go to thetrustedge.com, thetrustedge, E-D-G-E, dot com. And you can also link, if you can spell it, davidhorsager.com, david, H-O-R-S-A-G-E-R.com. But maybe the best way is simple to find the Trust Edge and then link over to David Horsager if you want to see uh, 80 videos and what I do speaking-wise and consulting-wise and some of those kind of things. Um, jump from the Trust Edge if you'd like, and uh, at least you can find out how to Google and spell my name. So, um, Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dave. Where are you? Are you off and running, or um, you know, are you I'm here doing or? a bunch of. Yep, I mean, I've been running, running, running. I put uh, about five thousand miles uh, from airplane last week, coast to coast to coast. I uh, was out still till Monday night. Now I'm here, and we're doing some interviews and stuff. And I looks like I might have to go to LA the end of the week, but otherwise, I'll be here and don't fly out till Sunday. Uh, so wonderful. Well, yeah. enjoy your time with family, and um, again. I, I just um, think it's so cool, the, the work that you're doing. I think it's very powerful, and I'm so glad Simon and um, Schuster picked you up and saw the power in your message. So thank, thank you, you again so much. You have thank a wonderful you, day. Talk to you later. You bet. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. Um, for all of you um, listening to the show, again, if you enjoyed the show, we would love you to go ahead and tweet and Facebook, and uh, you can email it. You can embed the information if you'd like. Um, but, again, we're just kind of our little grassroots effort trying to uh, spread the word of what's going on in the world and how it might be able to help you in terms of being a better care partner no matter who you are. Uh, we have some great shows coming up. Uh, Kari Barrett is going to be with us on the 15th, and she is the author of The Unexpected Caregiver. And then on the 18th, Eileen Smith is the author of The Black Hole, and she actually was, I think, the director um, over in, was it Australia or New Zealand? Uh, New Zealand, I can't say that word all of a sudden, um, of the Alzheimer's Association over there. And so she's going to have some wonderful insight, as her husband has dementia as well. And then we've got Dr. Um, Patty uh, Heady on on the 23rd. So we've got 
lots of neat things. And November 1st is going to be a great show with Monica Helmtees of Mind Start. So if you think that maybe you would be a great guest, um, if you are a person who has dementia, if you are a personal caregiver, a professional uh, doing something a little bit different, or maybe you're an advocate, we would love to hear your voice. Please reach out to me. And don't forget to check out our website, alzheimerspeaks.com. There you can get feeds to the radio shows, uh, to the blog. Um, the resource directory is on there, etc. So we would love to have you be part. Remember, uh, when you're working with a person with dementia, please focus on three simple things that your memory chip teaches us, and that is, are they safe, are they happy, and are they pain-free? With that, I'm going to go ahead and close the show, and I hope you all have a blessed day. Thank you now. Bye. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.